Uh, welcome back to the Kaiku Podcast. The Chris's are with me again. Yo, yo, yo. Hello. And today uh, is our final episode of this uh, this journey through Kurosawa's catalog. Uh, spoiler alert, we are recording this before we've watched all of the other movies, uh, but, but Chris, <laughs> Chris and I have watched Moisek uh, probably 60% of them by now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the reason for this uh, early recording is because uh, the film we are going to discuss, Metadiao, is licensed by Criterion, but Criterion has not released the film as an independent release. Um, you can only get the movie if you bought the $400 DVD box set that they put out over a decade ago, or by watching it on Filmstruck. And it is November 2018. Filmstruck is dead, and we do not know uh, where Criterion streaming is going to go to, so we decided to just get this one film knocked out. We'll release it whenever we release it. So if we say something like, you know, Seven Samurai is my favorite movie ever, but actually at some point we said Ron was, that's why. <laughs> because this is a little uh, little out of, uh, out of time space. Yeah. Oof, man. What will it be like in... Uh March 2020 or so when I release this. Oh, I think it'd be interesting because this this technically won't be our final final episode because um, there I think there there's two movies that we've skipped at this point and then by the time we're done there might be a third that we skip <clears throat> and that's just because of availability. Um, so I would like us to to continue to try to watch those last two or three films. Um, and then we could do a pickup episode and uh, give a a grand summary at the the true end of the journey. That's right. That's right. So what what, what ones are we missing here, Chris? Um, the Quiet Duel, um, uh, Rhapsody in August is a little hard to come by because that was an independent release, and I do not have the spreadsheet up to tell you the Japanese name of the one Kurosawa film that has not ever been released in America. Uh, those who make tomorrow uh that that one film has never been released in any form in america previously so we'd have to take to the fan subs and see if it's been subtitled or if it, that's just a lost film who knows not i <laughs> uh but we will get through the rest of those for now we are here for the at least kurosawa's last movie uh magadayo which it translates to not yet, which is uh, fitting for, for Kurosawa's last movie. Sadly fitting. Tragic and sad in all the ways. Yeah, man. So, Chris, uh, what is Matadayo about? Well, uh, Matadayo is about apparently the world's greatest professor, um, based on the, the real life of Japanese uh, academic and author Hyakiden Hyaken. Uchida, my apologies, um, and it starts uh, during World War II, where he announces, you know, hey, I'm going to retire as a professor because uh, my writings have seemed to have found a market, and I can make some money um, just just by writing, by being an author. Um, and where the the world's greatest professor apparently comes in is all of his students, both current and previous, adore this man to a- absurd ends. It's kind of uh, crazy how the film depicts how much they love him. But the film carries on through the rest of uh, Uchida's life, 
in the form of small vignettes. So the, the, the first real story that we get is about how his house was bombed and destroyed during World War II, and he is now living in a shack. Um, and then his students build him a new house um, where he gets an alley cat, but then he, he loses the alley cat. Uh, the the bookends of the film are his birthday celebration. So one of the things that all of his students have decided to do is to celebrate Uchida's birthday every year with this grand old bash where everybody just gets absurdly drunk. <laughs> um, and they call it the Not Yet Fest because one of Uchida's big things is – you know, hey, you're 60 years old at the start of this movie. Are you gonna? Are you ready to die yet? Not yet. Are you ready to to give it up and call it quits? Not yet. It's about this man's perseverance through whatever obstacles life throws at him as he tries to to rise up to the top and continue to live uh, to live his best life. And that's where the title of the film Matadayo comes from. It literally means not yet. And this is portrayed most powerfully during the birthday bashes, the first birthday bash at the beginning of the film and the 17th birthday bash at the end of the film, where all the students yell out, Madakai, which means, are you ready? And he just replies, Madadayo, not yet. Um, and they just do a back and forth. Are you ready? Not yet. Um, and it, it's it's a really powerful film about this professor trying to do his art and to to do what he can do to contribute to society with the loved ones around him. And it's really easy to see the parallels of Kurosawa's life and why he would have chose to do this film, because sadly, um, Kurosawa did pass away at the age of 88, five years after this film came out. So Kurosawa was already the age, if actually older than Uchida is in this film when he made it. And he's telling us not yet, but sadly this was it. Yeah. And, uh, it, it is set, uh, during both during and after world war two, a uh, setting which Kurosawa has, uh, seemingly endless ideas for, um, like we, when I, when I was watching this movie, I was most, uh, or I saw uh, the biggest parallel between this and One Wonderful Sunday. I don't know if he felt the same, Chris, but uh, it just felt like this this professor was just trying to deal with the, the post-war realities of Japan as best he could, uh, just as the, the couple in Full Sunday was. I can definitely see that. Um, what's interesting is uh, if you take those two movies and look at them side by side like that, you can really see how Matadayo is 100% a Kurosawa film with his directorial style and the way that he had grown into making films over the past, you know, 60 years. Whereas This Wonderful Sunday, that was the one that I had mentioned was very Frank Capra-esque. Um, so if you if you were to remove the Capra influence and make it purely what Kurosawa would have done, I can I can definitely get on board with that. Yeah, it's like, uh, not yet, I want to keep making more movies, but also not yet, we, we still need to revisit this post-war era of Japan. Uh, but other Chris, what, what, did you, what did you think of this movie? Um, I thought I, I was going to touch on um, the, the depiction of, of during the war and post-war Japan. I thought especially post-war, um, just his house got 
was one of the ones burnt down during the bombings, and he lived, lives in a shack. And the way it's depicted is his life is, and it, I guess it kind of keeps with the theme of the film of not yet, is he's just kind of letting his life go on. He's living in this shack, he's writing, and his wife is there with him. Um, and you just know, like, you just know there's all this terrible stuff that went on around him, but life's going on, and he's, you know, he's giving it a go. And um, there's also, later in the movie, there's the, um, basically the landlord, or I guess the, the guy who owns that one piece of property that, or the pieces of property where Professor um, Professor uh, Uchida gets his, his house built on, and then across the street, there's that other um, piece of property that the students eventually buy just so that the one guy doesn't build that ostentatious house next to the professor. And, um, and take away their sunlight. And take away their sunlight. Yeah. But I found just the whole thing of, oh, he's such a nice man. He lives in the shack at the corner. And then they're like, we'll buy this property so you can build yourself a proper house. It's also very matter of fact. It's the kind of depiction of a kind of a post-war environment. You could only tell, I think, if you were there. Because you're you're really he's I feel like I feel like it's just being portrayed in a way by someone who we very obviously experienced it firsthand and was there, um, and about how you know it looks and it is terrible and it, and it looks terrible but life's still going on for all these people and they're still giving it a go and then flash forward to the uh, scene the final uh, not yet party seventeen years on and it's just uh, the professor's almost overwhelmed at how much everybody has they have children and grandchildren he asks when the flowers are brought to him who are these people and they're like those are your students children and then those little kids walk the cake up and he's like who are these people and it's those are your students grandchildren um and so there's there's such a just a push to just tell you tell the viewer life's still marching on don't give up and and the professor even gives a speech about how i could have hung myself from this tree but it would have broken and given up but i'm still here and, and it's a lot of, I think, Kurosawa telling you that he's not giving up. He's going to keep going as long as he can go. Yeah, even among retirement, among being bombed, among everything. Uh, yes. He, yeah. He's still got to keep... Yeah, and, the, and one thing I, 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 it kind of uh, pulls on my brain a little bit is that the, the film uh, Kurosawa and Ishiro Honda, the guy who did uh, the original Godzilla, they, they wrote the screenplay based off of Hyakuen Uchida's actual essay. So... I don't know what kind of writing he did because it didn't really talk about the kind of uh, stories that he wrote, uh, but it looks like he did a lot of autobiogra- uh, autobiographical um, essays, and that's that's why uh, the film kind of has this episodic nature to it. And I'd be really interested to to be able to read that because I think that's really you know not just because Kurosawa lived through it, but because these are based off of autobiographical essays. That's why the film really brings out that authentic, you know, we were there, we know how shitty it was, and we knew what it had to do and uh, or what it had to take to to continue on, and th- this is the mindset. Uh, I think that's really, really cool that they were able to, from, from two perspectives, bring that lived-in feeling to the film. Yeah, there's, uh, there's definitely a brotherhood amongst them from, like, living through these same things together and i got this is something that came to me just now but like they didn't really bring this up but i'm sure some of his uh students were drafting into the war fought in the war died in the war and maybe he is uh just extra extra protective of the ones that 
came home are the ones that never had to go. Yeah. I felt the, the film was really... This was such an optimistic uh, and beautiful type of film. Um, it, Kurosawa easily could have made this very depressing because of all the, the incidents that occur throughout Uchida's life. But it, it, it goes really hand-in-hand hand with the, the whole not-yet attitude that it's just so optimistic and, and beautiful and positive. So it's it's kind of telling the way that the story's told that um, for whatever reason, the story that involves the cat, this man's cat, this professor's cat goes missing, this is the part that hits you the hardest as a viewer, and it's depicted as the real emotional crux of the movie. I mean, the, the, his cat goes missing, the professor's not eating, he's not drinking, he's wearing all this makeup to make him look like he's just really, really sick and frail, and you just worry, oh, is this it for him? Is this what, what puts him over the edge? He's seen everything. His students could go off to war, or it's not told to us, the viewer, but his students most likely go off to war, don't come back. He's, at this point, seen Japan just, you know, bombed, his house burnt to the ground, he's had to live in a shack, all of this. Yet, for whatever reason, he kept, you know, going on. Things emotionally for him seemed fine, and then his cat goes missing. And it hits you as a viewer just to. I mean, if you've ever had an animal, just to observe a man dealing with this type of loss. Um, but the real, I think, emotional point it's trying to make is life goes on. He's able to keep plugging along, but he loses something, I guess, maybe before he's prepared to lose it. And um, that, I think, is perhaps what he's with what that story is trying to tell. And I don't know... Uh, Professor Uchida's writings at all, so I don't know exactly, um, and we, this was mentioned earlier, but I don't know exactly what he's writing about, how this how this is based off of something uh, he wrote, but there's, there's just a, a strange, unique emotional gravity that this cat story has compared to everything else in the, story, in the movie, which almost feels a little lighthearted, despite what's going on around him. Yeah, that shit was depressing as hell. Because I'm I'm a I'm a super cat person, and like I lost my best friend uh, two years ago, and so like during this whole sequence, I was just I was I was that old man. I felt so bad for him, and I was like, you can do it. I believe in you, but like I really understand like what you're saying, um, because when I, when I lost my my cat, it was it was one of the most difficult experiences because he meant so much to me. Um, so like, I totally understand where this guy's coming from and it could be, you know, I've had bad things happen to me before and after, but I, I needed my friend. I needed that cat to help me get through. And so just by having that ripped away from you before you were ready, it's, uh, it feels as if you can't take care of the rest of life at the same time because you're kind of depending on that relationship to help you get through and I, I think that might be part of it too that that's what that cat was to him that was helping him get through all of these terrible things and it it just all cascades down like not just the cat missing but everything else in life falls down on you when you get kicked out at the knees like that yeah and i've, I've never really i've never owned a pet but like is there a feeling uh with uh, with your other pecs or with a new pec that uh, you're, you're not replacing but you have some different comfort in that? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, 
it, about three or four months after my cat passed away, uh, we got a, a new cat because I was still having such a super, super hard time. Um, and that, that's little baby Cooper. Um, he, he never replaced Booger. He didn't fill in that void, but he, uh, he, he brought a, he brought a new life, um, into my life. So it's, it's not replacement. It's finding, finding another way to go on that, that things, things can be different, but they can still progress, which I think really is what happened at the end of this whole sequence when another stray cat comes into their property through the exact same way that his old cat did. And they're like, and they just immediately swooped up that cat. I'm like, okay. Yeah. And pecs, uh, pecs are a kind of thing, uh, a recurring theme in this movie as well. They had the, the bird in their shack that his wife took out of the house, uh, because they found it as like a little tiny bird, uh, saved it and then just raised it. It's like if if we save nothing else from this house and uh, in the air raids, then it's going to be this bird. Life is precious, no matter if it's human or animal. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, given that this is Kurosawa's last movie, um, we we are long past the the days of uh, Takashi Shimura and Toshiro Mifune. This is actually the first movie that I've watched uh, without either of them in the cast, but uh, a pleasant surprise is George Tokoro, who plays uh, one of one of the students. Um, he he was like a, a life in the movie that a different kind of life in the movie that uh, I'm not sure Mifune or Shimura can pull off. Was he the uh, the one who stole his hat when they uh, broke in, or was he the one with the glasses that broke in? <laughs> Uh, George Tokoro, I think, is the one with the glasses, right? I believe so. He was the one uh, holding the fans in in the uh, the first giant beer hall scene. Okay, yeah, yeah. He was uh, he was a very bright. That character itself was just a very bright light in the movie. Oh, every time, every time um, Amaki's on the on the screen, he kind of sucks up some of the attention, and you're always kind of wondering what he's gonna do next. Um, that scene where they broke into his house and he <laughs> was just the, that whole thing. And he's just, and he, it's almost like he's laughing at the whole, it's like the actor himself is laughing at the whole script of this thing. Cause it's just so, so fantastic. He's got all the arrows set up, robbers entrance, robbers go this way. It's just so, it's so clever. Oh man. That was, and I, I kind of forget, forget about that with everything else that happened in the movie. Cause that's very early on. But it's it's such a bright way to start the movie. That was, that was super cool, and and they, and I was expecting because I didn't know what type of tone the movie was was going for yet since it had just started, and I was sitting there expecting them to start making fun of the old man, be like, "Look here, you crazy ass old man. That's not actually going to keep burglars away just by having signs <laughs> telling them." But they were like, "Nah, this is this is adorable. I love this old man." And then they just carried on. It was like. I love that guy, um, which is a bit refreshing. I thought. Oh yeah, just the the fact that his students and and the, the final uh, the final not yet party seventeen years after the first one, right? Which marks I don't I don't even want to know how many years since he stopped teaching or or seventeen years was it seventeen years since he stopped teaching? I think yeah, I, yeah think I think that, that the the first party was within the same calendar year after he stopped teaching. It was the, okay. like the students' way of trying to, to keep contact with them. I don't think there was 
much substantial time okay. in, in between. Yeah. Either way, it's um, – yeah. yeah I, no, I just thought – I thought um, just th- – there's something I think with the students, um, and it's it's the professor reminds them of being young so they can goof off and kind of be kids kids around him even though regardless of um, – what they're doing in life outside of that and we see the one 17 years on they're bringing kids and grandkids but they're still with their professor they're still students in his classroom um there's a really good scene when he announces his retirement where the camera is behind behind him and it's facing out at all the students and i think it sets a tone for the whole movie about how it's these students looking forward looking towards their professor with this admiration and the professor just kind of being, you know, this little, he's, he's such a likable guy, but he's a little bit of a goof. Um, he's just, you know, off doing his writing, selling his writings and, and living life with his wife. Um, while the students are going off achieving from what we're able to gather, some of them do some pretty great things in life. Right. Yeah. They, yeah. They, it looks like a bunch of them like ended up, uh, one of them specifically is called out as being an executive at one point. Yeah, he, he calls him out to, to say being an executive is not worth ending of itself. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, like, four of them got together and bought dude, you know, property and built him a house no, debt-free, so they have to be doing pretty okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I looked it up. Uh, I mean, Fune, or Shimura had, had already passed away by this point. He passed away in the mid-80s or so. Uh, but Mifune passed away a couple years after this film. Uh, so, you know, could have had Professor as Mifune, or Mifune as the Professor, the right row around. Yeah, I think that would have been interesting, but I actually really liked uh, Tatsuo Matsumura's performance. I, I think he, he brought something unique that you know by using the same actors in most of his films you see how wide of a range uh, shimura and mifune had like wow they can do fucking anything but at the same time you know matsumura did a really good performance and it's it stands out because it is um a, a different actor it's not the the staple that we're used to yeah. Oh, no. I know. I think I'm pretty okay with the with the way it is. I don't I don't have any wishes for if Mifune and Kurosawa mended their their spat and Mifune came in to be the old crotchety old man. I would have liked I would have liked Mifune if only for the synergy of him and uh, Kyoko Kagawa being on, an on screen relationship again. This time in old age, as opposed to when they were younger in movies in the fi- 40s and 50s, or Megas mainly in the 50s. But that's just that's just kind of a fan thing. I think um, overall Matsumura did a did a wonderful job, um, and and it, and and I mean you can't argue that argue against uh, having Mifune in any role, but Matsumura <laughs> played the professor very well. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say a change uh, anything here in this, but you know it was an option. Um, but watching uh, watching movies. Or watching like this movie and Gersu Uzala, uh, it just allows for for someone who's a fan of Kurosawa's movies to watch him direct other people because he can obviously bring out so much from Shimura and uh, Mifune, but he can also bring out all of these amazing performances from all of these other people like 
Uh, one thing that just stuck out is uh, the dude who just rattled off all the train lines while everything crazy is happening. That guy. I, I almost forgot about that guy. <laughs> and he kept going. Like, the whole scene's going on, and he's still r- r- rattling them off, yep. just standing there. I have oh, never guy. seen anyone with that much focus. It was I, I'm, I'm a, I really I really like that guy. I'd like to hang out with him and just have him stand up at a birthday party of mine <laughs> and just recite the entire line. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that was wild. And I I thought it was pretty good. Like, everybody just magically disappeared. And he's still standing there, and then he finishes. And the, <laughs> this, the, the doctor and Uchida himself, they're the only ones left, and they're like, clap, clap, clap. Like, good job. It's like, yeah. <laughs> and he, he just goes, and he just he just finishes it nonchalantly. He's like, end of line. <laughs> 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 that first, that, the, that first uh, not yet party was, I think, the hot... Der- from a directing standpoint, the highlight. It's just, there's so much going on, and it's its just, it's Kurosawa at his best. He's just got 50, 60 people on screen, and they all feel like their own characters who have their own stories that you might want to learn, but you're not going to have the time to. So they're all involved in the scene. I just yeah. found that such a, especially at the end when they're doing the uh, Madakai, Madadayo bit, it's just such pure, perfect Kurosawa there. Yeah, no, that party was so well choreographed, well orchestrated in every sense. Um, like, there was a little bit there. I was like, is the movie almost over? Because this is like, this is, it feels like that would be where you end the film with this really elaborate high. Um, yeah, no, that was, that was such a great sequence. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought too. Uh, is this movie over? Yeah, has, is this already over? Uh, because I wanted to see them partying and playing around so much more. Uh, but that that scene is also in the backdrop of uh, U.S. occupation in Japan. Like two obviously U.S. Yeah. soldiers come up, uh, presumably because of a noise complaint, uh, or at least that's what I assumed. I'm not sure what what other reason they would have come up there, but they they just see there's a bunch of these people just celebrating uh, celebrating something, and they're like, uh, just let them be. Just let them be. Yep. Yeah, and then the second the second party, it, it kind of starts to pick up, and then suddenly Professor has his heart arrhythmia. He has to go home, um, and, it, and that's the ending. And I think that's one of the kind of ways you write a movie when you're in your 80s, and you, you, you're not looking, because, you know, you... You've experienced a lot more in life, and I think when you it, it kind of comes through in your writing, you're like, oh, here was a really exciting part in my 40s, but that was halfway, half my life ago, so that's the halfway point of the movie. Um, kind of, I guess, maybe that kind of mentality um, coming out in the way that Kurosawa scripted the movie. Yeah, I love, I love that kind of thing. Like it, he, uh, he's at this party, he has the arrhythmia, um, he's just kind of now resting while his students just party in, in his hallway, I guess. Uh, and then it cucks to him being younger, saying, Magagayo, Magakai, playing that, what seems to be like a hide-and-seek Marco Polo-type game with some other kids, uh, like, recalling a simpler time than uh, than post-war Japan or even 80s Japan, 70s, 80s Japan, when, when he eventually passed away. And he doesn't even... He doesn't even he doesn't respond to the Madakai the last time, right? He just looks up at that painting in the sky. Am I 
right or or that the colors in the sky it's kind of a painting i think um in the credits as it just transitions into the credits but he doesn't respond the last time am i right yeah 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 I, I took that to assume he passed i took it to the same thing he passed peace yeah i'm like man after all he's been through he's he's able to have this piece of passing and he got to have one more of those gigantic ass beers <laughs> so <laughs> ah, that is wonderful. They keep Just making giant them smaller. <laughs> oh yeah, they kept making them smaller. Well, I mean, that first one was what, like half a keg? Like I don't even know if that old man was holding that glass. It was so big. Like that has to weigh like thirty pounds, bro. <laughs> yeah, they they used some movie magic to make it look like he was drinking that whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, editing. Man, was that good? I also I also like the fact that his doctor was Doctor Quack. Uh, that poor guy. <laughs> Did we ever learn his real name? I, or, was, his his I real name is on the cast list, but I don't remember it ever being spoken. Yeah, I think he only ever referred to him as Dr. Quack. Oh, and then after the, oh, and the Reverend, who sits, sits on the other side of him at the uh, Not Yet Parties, <laughs> when uh, when he has the arrhythmia, the Reverend's just still eating. He's like, he's not ready for me yet. What kind of what kind of priest are you? Where's your compassion? He's not ready for me yet. Don't worry. <laughs> Nothing's gonna kill this stubborn old man. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I I believe we have run out of things to say about Modern Dio, but uh, does anyone else have anything else to add before we close out this half? Oh, the horse meat. Um, <laughs> another funny moment was um, he he has the students over before they start doing the. Um, parties for him he just has a bunch of his students over he to have some venison and he mentions i had to mix some horse meat in with it and they're like there's horse meat in here and then he has the, the flashback to the story when he's getting it chopped up and this horse just walks past him on the street and looks at <laughs> him, so him down. <laughs> but that if a horse could guilt trip you like that was it man it was like oh god but the whole punchline is that he knew the horse too <laughs> He's like, I knew that horse. He's going to be eating now, horse. Sorry. No, I guess the only other thing I have uh, is basically my final my final thoughts on it. Like, if this was a good movie, you know, and it feels, it feels very fitting to be Kurosawa's final film. Um, from the, the story being told, the, the kind of themes and optimism, this is, this is definitely the movie of a guy who's like 83 years old. Um, who wants to to still be doing what he he loves? Um, sucks that he wasn't that that his not yet was actually it. Um, but it's it was just just a very beautiful send off, and uh, I think yeah, I don't know if he was or not, but he should have been proud uh, that this was his final film. It was very good. Yeah, yeah. It feels like it feels like a final movie. Um, and it's very, very, and it's just a very good movie. He definitely should be proud of it. But it does, I think, just that final scene out in the field uh, playing the game, it just feels like that's like the kind of thing you just wish you could make the final scene in your final movie. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, th- this is uh, perhaps not the intended send-off for Kurosawa, but it was definitely a fitting one for him. Uh, man, what a, what a move. Uh, all right, so... Well, uh, let's let's end out this half of the podcast. Where can we find you two on the internet? Oh, okay, all right. I am on uh, on Twitter at, as Ant- Antonius Pius. Um, just request me. 
I may be private. I may not. Depends on the uh, on which way the winds are blowing. Um, I will be back with Chris to talk about uh, the Quiet Ghoul, one of the uh, last Chris Allen movie or the last Chris Allen movie that we will talk about. And we are back, and I'm here with Chris still. <laughs> Hello, everybody. And we're going to talk about The Quiet Duel. Um, this is a movie that you came across um, for cheaper than, yeah, you know, the listed several hundred dollar price, I assume. Yeah, it, it, the, there was a DVD that was put out of, for this many, many, many moons ago that's long out of print. Um, so that was why we put this on the, well, maybe we'll watch it and talk about it list. um but yeah i came across a a british dvd for like 15 bucks or something like that so i snagged it up nice um yeah this is uh i know magadayo as we talked about in the last segment is a very good uh coda to kurosawa's entire catalog but perhaps going back to this movie seeing uh mifune and um uh shimura back together is just the perfect ending to uh, this whole Kurosawa series. We've watched uh, 32 movies now, Chris. Is that right? That is correct. All right. And we are back. Um, instead of 1993, where Magadaya was, we are back in 1949. Um, and as I said, with Mifune and Shimura. But Chris, what is this movie about? Well, this movie, it's uh, based off of a play, and it is about a surgeon who contracts syphilis while operating on a patient. Uh, He accidentally cuts his finger while operating on a patient, and the patient had syphilis. So this melodrama is about this doctor trying to, you know, live his life with this disease that he captured and try to control his life from spiraling and completely being destroyed. He's got a fiancé that he ends up dumping, but he refuses to tell her he has syphilis. Um, He's really trying to keep it under wraps because it could be very damaging to his, not just career, but his social life, his entire functioning existence. Um, and, And the implications that go about, you know, keeping these secrets and living with this disease that is actually very very severe we we think of syphilis mostly as just a an std one of the the worst stds but syphilis is it has the potential to be a much more severe disease where it can literally boil your brain and cause madness and um physical deformities in children that's congenital syphilis there's many different forms that syphilis can take so the scare factor and the precautions that are being used is go well beyond just you know put on a condom yeah um and that's pretty much the movie simple plot uh not much going on as short for uh for the movies that we had been used to watching up to this point um and uh 
It, it is a, a wartime doctor as well. He appears to have been serving as a doctor in the war. He uh, mentions at one point the um, uh, resisting the temptations of the wars, which I assume he is referring to the comfort woman from the way that Kurosawa was framing uh, Mifune's... Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Do not know. <laughs> <laughs> His, uh, his struggles in this moment. Um, Kurosawa, as with all of these wartime things, appears to not be uh, supportive of the comfort woman, which is good. They were raped and such, but um, it, it is uh, just yet another aspect in this entire line of Kurosawa films that are like so vehemently anti-war in like every aspect possible. Yeah, the, the opening segment of the film, like maybe the first 20 minutes or so, uh, take place, I think it was 1944, so it takes place during the war. That's where the operation where he cuts himself takes place. He's on the battlefield. He's been up for like three or four days straight. Uh, anyway, we see him catching a cat nap with, with his arms held up in the air covered in blood. Um, so he's just in between patients, and he passed out, basically. <laughs> Um, and some some of the people that he's talking with, and the patients, uh, more specifically the soldiers that he's taking care of, they're the ones uh, that are talking about using the comfort women. And it, it's very the way Kurosawa frames it, coming from the privates, it's very base and very grotesquely discussed. Like you kind of you do not like the soldiers talking about going off and and fucking all the ladies because that, that, it's the same it's the same mentality it's that same gross tos- toxic masculinity that you see in a lot of american films it's that same idea that women are just there to be used and soldiers are my, my brain is dying on the word entitled to it um and, and they, they 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 it's just it's just really really gross and you can see that kurosawa is not kind <laughs> Uh, towards this kind of mentality. And uh, that was one of the things I didn't mention, uh, the, the whole wartime thing. The reason why Mifune has decided to like cancel basically his entire social life except for work is because he, was, he did contract it during the war. He wasn't able to seek help. He wasn't able to get any medicine because he was in the middle of the war going from base to base, you know, mm-hmm. jungle to jungle, and so he neglected it, and the the disease compounded and got more complicated inside of his system. And so he, he basically had to wait until he got home from the war to start stealing medicine to try to treat treat it two or three years late. Yeah, and next, uh, one of the pivotal moments, there is a... Uh a woman who is pregnant with um, some dude's baby. Uh, I believe it was her former husband, and she's just trying to leave him, and he, she doesn't want the baby at the time. Uh, there is not abortion access, or uh, people don't even want to talk about abortion probably in 1949. So she is just forced to uh, keep this baby, because um, there's like no, no way around this. But she eventually comes around to the idea um of of keeping the child of uh even becoming a nurse she starts the nurse training with uh, uh an older nurse there and she falls in love with mifune through all through all this time um just working together and like they got of course they don't show any socializing outside of work that's not a thing that you can do in this time period probably um 
And really, the entire movie is set during work, so we don't really see anything. That is happening outside of their work lives, but you do see this growing connection between the two. Um, as you see Mifune pushing away his fiance because he doesn't, he knows the risks of syphilis and he doesn't want to, uh, put that on her. So he's, he pushes away her and pushes away everybody. Um, eventually leading to this nurse, uh, learning that he has, I believe he was talking to Shimura, who is his gag, which is kind of funny. Yes. Mifune, Mifune and Shimura are like five years apart, right? <laughs> Something like that. They they weren't they weren't that drastically different in age. Yeah, they just look that drastically different in age. Um, but yeah, that is, that is when Mifune really starts to get the official power for the for Cephalus before just stealing the drugs. And uh, actually, the the woman was uh, blamed for it. Uh, Misao Maximoko probably. Sounds about right. There were there were a lot of M's. I remember no, the no. head punch. Uh, Minigishi. Minigishi. Yes. Okay. Played by Noriko Sengoku. Uh, she's the only one with a Wikipedia arc. <laughs> we, we apologize, dear listeners. We're not exactly on our game. The election is tomorrow, and my brain doesn't know what it's doing. <laughs> yeah, at least it's not. <laughs> but yeah, so because she was more of a street person, she was brought into the hospital uh, by an act of good faith from Mifune to, to help her get off the street to not abort the baby and to not fall ill. It was basically a goodwill hire. Um, so she she is mistreated by the other nurses and looked down upon by everybody. So, of course, when drugs start going missing, it must be the quote-unquote hooker who got pregnant and doesn't have a daddy um, th- that must have syphilis and is stealing the syphilis medicine. So when she catches Mifune injecting it into himself, she's like, ha-ha, and, and and that's that's its own like little subplot. Her she catches him and she thinks that he's uh, a player. Mm-hmm. She's like, you're you're the one going around just fucking all the ladies, aren't you? Stupid, blah 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 blah. In, in like this weird mocking um, tone that's still kind of jovial. She doesn't disdain him. Right. She's just kind of kind of poking on him. Because and she's so, she's probably used to playing like that with her friends, and not that she is um, the kind of thing that they assume of her. But she is uh, of a lower class before she joins, uh, or she before she becomes a nurse. So she's probably used to just uh, joking around with her friends, playing like other people. But like no one's probably sleeping around with all those people this time, and who cares? Yeah, that's right. Um, and the yeah, and, and then and then he gets into an argument with his dad. Shimura, and so they go off, and so she's like, I'm gonna go eavesdrop, and then she learns the truth, and that's what turns her around, and she starts taking everything much more seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really like those moments where, um, where she is turning into this caring character, like, she came into this just wanting her life back, basically, um, because she was burdened with this child, like, she didn't want, and she didn't want the husband either, or partner or whoever it was. I assume I think it was a um and I she, do not recall but like, she she wanted nothing to do with yeah. him. He wanted nothing to do with her like it was it was going nowhere so she I I mean I was in her ball court, you know, yeah. the whole time. So she wanted to like restart her life, but really she found a different life as a nurse and I, she really improved her life this way like um the especially the scene when Mifune is like uh dishing out his entire uh thinking about through, about having syphilis about uh all the burdens on him like he went to war he uh resisted everything 
he helped people, and he still got this thing. And then you see the contrast between uh, Mifune and the soldier who he helped, who comes in at one point and says, my wife is pregnant. Um, mm-hmm. And then it goes back to what you were talking about with the uh, birth deformity. The, the baby itself ends up being premature, and um, risking the mother's life, they say they have to give birth to it now, and the gag comes in drunk as the wife says, I'm never going to see him again because he is abusive, uh, or whatever. Um, and then he sees the baby that was born, and you, we never see the baby, but it is assumed to be uh, in some sort of not great shape, because it is assumed to not have lived that long after... Uh, after well, I don't think it's really it, it really tells like if, if the baby lived or or survived very much longer, but it's definitely uh, foreshadowed that the baby is deformed in some some yeah. sort. Of I the mean, past. I read it as they heard the cries and then when he came in and out of the room, the cries stopped. So I read that as the baby passed up. Mm. But could have been. Yeah, could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong too. Um, but yeah, and that was. So, so that whole subplot really, I think that's like, that feels to me like it's most of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it plays out kind of like a, an old PSA, in my opinion. Uh, because the, the soldier comes into his life in, bo- in all three acts. The soldier is there in act one, mm-hmm. where he gives him the, the disease. And there's a, an additional scene when the, the soldier is in recovery after surgery and Mifune confronts him. He's like, hey, bro, you got syphilis? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He's like, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah, I got the syphilis. He's like, you need to, when, when you get home, you need to go see a doctor. You need to get this taken care of. It's a very serious disease. And then in Act 2, the soldier pops back up again, and he's like, yeah, no, I'm cured, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm getting laid. It's all good. I got a wife. I got a baby on the way. And Mifune's like, did you see a doctor? Nah, fuck that. I, I just, I know I'm better. Which is funny because so many people still in the year 2020 do that. They're like, no, I feel better. I know I'm better. It's like, mm. no. You, you should go get tested to make sure that you're better or not. You don't just assume that you're better because your symptoms went away. Oh, if only there is, like, a parallel about that now. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Who would have thought? Plagues be plaguing. Uh. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and that really brings up, like, this big, huge, like, moral conundrum inside the film and i feel that that's like the main moral uh center center focus of the story because when it comes up in act three it's like yep uh you do still have the syphilis we got to tell your wife and the wife is all pissed she's like i'm sorry i got the what now um and the baby might be might have the what now um that creates additional tension and so that felt to me like the main meat of the story but it in the end, like with all of that stuff, it's like, yeah, there's consequences to your actions. Shocker of shocks. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you kind of feel bad for Mifune's fiance because he won't tell her, which I don't know if like, I don't know how I feel about him wanting to keep it secret, but things were a lot different in the 1940s, especially in Japan. So I'm not going to say much about that. Like his business is his business, but you kind of feel like, 
sad and sympathetic towards the fiance that she's getting dumped and she loves him and she's really trying. She spends the whole movie, even after she gets another fiance, trying to to woo him back to mm-hmm. to let her uh, back into his life, and he's just like, "No, ma'am, sorry." And then it all it just all comes to a head at the end, and you're just like, "See, Mifune did the right thing. This dude did not." PSA: This is how you live your life with syphilis. <laughs> Um, (laughs) I wonder, like, maybe uh, Japanese government had, uh, they worked with Kurosawa on his previous propaganda movies, maybe they were like, hey, you should do about about this thing that is happening all across Japan, I assume, all across Japan. Yeah, the the war is over, let's, let's, let's make a, uh, a health film. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's, it's possible, um, there's not too much that I was able to read up on the film um, it's one of Kurosawa's least seen films. It's the it's one of two that aren't in the Criterion Collection. Um, mm. So it's I don't I don't know if there's just not a whole lot of information made available. But this was like his second or third movie made um, when the war ended. He, he actually it had a different ending, which I think would have been a pretty cool ending. But the uh, the U.S propaganda you know he's still fighting propaganda the u.s propaganda censorship board said nah we need we need a positive ending like kurosawa went full dark um after the whole thing with the old ordeal with the soldier and the baby with congenital syphilis and maybe it dies maybe it's just deformed i don't know Mm -hmm. um we forgot (laughs) um the, the film ends with like this this montage of mifune just working away He's keeping on doing the good the, the good deeds. Um, he was supposed to go mad with syphilis in the original script. He was to succumb, go mad, and literally lose everything. That is even more PSA ish, mm-hmm. but it's also like like that that's really trying to reach out and and put the fear of 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 it in people. But the censorship board said no, make it a little more happy. So. I mean, it's still, it, it, it ends up being a moot point, but I really wonder if that might not have been the case, that, the, that he was hired for this movie to be like, you know, hey, we need to raise awareness. Yeah, I mean, it could be. And this uh, uh, this was uh, also the second collaboration between Mifune and Kurosawa, and, like, the first one, Mifune was afflicted uh, with something else, right? Oh yeah, yeah. He was the the gangster who yeah. yeah he got it was a gangster who got sick with something that was drunken angel yeah uh, tuberculosis TB there you yep. go the go to disease <laughs> yeah um I was wondering, like half joking wondering whether it grows out or Mifune was going to be typecasted as uh, dude with disease after this movie <laughs> but, we uh, know that not to be true yeah. because the buddy buddy cop drama comedy. <laughs> came and rescued the day yeah but i do wonder yeah i do wonder like what the reception of mifune around this time was the second film with kurosawa who is at this point an up-and-coming director and not really a very known commodity but like even now you can see the immense talent in mifune uh mm-hmm. in acting out uh this entire role like mm-hmm. It did not seem like there is any quality lost between, say, this movie and uh, Sanjuro. No, like the, the qualities of the films themselves are, you know, gulfs and valleys. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> Mifune, he's he's still he's always on point. He he was just always 
always in charge of his game, just a master. Yeah. And even Shimura as well. I like really loved Shimura as his dad. And after so many after so many Shimura appearances where he's just this random side character that's on screen for 5 <laughs> minutes, it was really nice to get some actual acting from our boy again and seeing him face to face with Mifune again. Mm-hmm. That was really nice cuz they're just they're just both incredible actors and they they did what they did so so well even when kurosawa was was not you know hitting home runs and you know hitting doubles or whatnot they they were always in the bleachers saying we're done Hmm. yeah i really liked how shimura was playing this uh or how he can play these characters with really subdued uh character traits like he he isn't in the movie nearly as much as Mifune, obviously, but he is still there, and when he's there, he makes this big impact, but it, like, you can kind of forget that it happens because Mufune can take over a scene so easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it reminds like it reminds me of uh, how different um, movies would be if, or all of Kurosawa's movies would be, if the roles were switched, uh, if they even could be switched at all. Uh, <laughs> like, imagine Seven Samurai with those roles switched. That'd be kind of wild. Yeah. <laughs> the cool, calm-headed leader ends up like Mifune would play Kambe like like a Yakuza boss. He would just be like so stone-faced. <laughs> you like you would be terrified of yeah. him. <laughs> but like I can't even imagine uh, Kikuchiro Samurai Shimura being yeah. <laughs> um, that would that would be he would be a lot more humble. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, Kurosawa knows his actor. Where I'm getting that. Uh, but I, I really liked this movie. I think this was, uh, some as I said at the beginning, it was a really nice thing to end on for us. Um, having watched 32 Kurosawa films. How long has it been, Chris? <laughs> it's been three years at least, maybe three and a half. I do, I do not even recall anymore. I can find out in like 0.2 milliseconds, though. Give me a second here. I've opened the website. And find oh, well, I have, a, I have a list on Letterboxd. Oh, that too. <laughs> with links to to everything i haven't posted it yet because we're not done but Sanjiro sugata march 19th 2017 yeah i released that first episode march 19th 2017 i guess i was very efficient with that one i guess no no i read that off of the the url oh okay yeah i'm i'm I'm, I'm legit uh, since march 2017 we're doing this we've watched now all of kurosawa's available movies as Letterboxd. Three and a half years on the dot almost. I was good. Yeah, as Letterboxd has told us, there is two other movies that are just uh, 0% available. Um, <laughs> but Chris, how do you feel at the end of this journey? Um, I, I know you probably watched a complete director's filmography before. I don't think I have done this. Um, but uh, I, we obviously learned a lot about Kurosawa. What were mm-hmm. the, uh, the biggest surprises for you? Uh... Well, first up, um, I also liked Quiet Duel. I didn't really fall in love with it as much as as much as you did, uh, because of the. It's basically it's it's a little too melodramatic and too stage play y for me to really get into it. Uh, but like you said, just being able to be with Shimura and Mifune again, there there was some good nostalgia that came along with that. So I'm also happy that this was the uh, the final film that we watched. Even though Matadaya was just like this really uplifting, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a good end to the to his career. 
this was a good end to to watching it all just because we loved these two actors so dearly and we've missed them for the almost the past year um it's it's been let's see how long since redbeard it's been five months since redbeard so that, probably wow. six or seven months since we talked about redbeard um <laughs> just nice just nice yeah. to come back and yeah i have finished directors filmographies before um a few uh actually but i tend to watch a lot of directors who don't have 30 films under their belt usually they're 10 or less or john carpenter's 22 or 23 um so this but this this felt different because i had watched a lot of the movies previously and had a lot uh, a lot of respect for them but going in and going through this step by step was really it was this is what I love. This is why I believe in the auteur theory um, of film, because you, you do really learn about the filmmakers. If the if a filmmaker is allowed to use his voice and actually is able to create a film that is his own, the, the, the whole auteur theory, it's not universal. You learn more about that creator than you do in say you know a built by committee or a traditional collaborative studio film you and and going through these we were able to learn about kurosawa by both by the films and from reading about them and when we got to the movies that i had seen before they had greater context they had a greater sense of appreciation because you were able to see his ups and his downs uh you could see when when he had a box office hit and he went off and did something weird um and they were like all right you got to stop doing that so he, he came up with another big box office hit um that was a, that was it's a fascinating process and that's that's why i've watched so many complete filmographies from directors because that is the experience you get every single time you you make that kind of commitment and sharing it with you Corey, and sharing the back half you know the this the second 50 percent with the other chris has been just more fun you know it's fun to share in that experience and i i love i love watching filmographies mm-hmm. as much as i love just watching random ass movies yeah yeah and i think there are a lot of uh revelations that we made for about kurosawa throughout this thing um especially his last two films rhapsody in august Mardayo, were just as good as ron and dreams um well maybe not just as good uh they should be watched with equal appreciation <laughs> yeah we, we, this this nonsense that after Redbeard or whatever that he made two good movies and after ron it's just skippable like that's just nonsense and yeah. we weren't able to, to see that yeah, like it. Gogeskagon uh, is more skippable than Ramsey and August or Mario Dio. And Derzu Azale is not to be missed. Yeah, that one is still one of my favorite movies from Kurosawa. Maybe uh, top five. Um, yeah, that was that was. I, I was not prepared for that experience, and I really love that one. Yeah, and then like a lot of his post-war stuff, obviously, his during war stuff was propaganda films, and I don't need to watch those ever again. But uh, <laughs> the post-war stuff is very, very strong, including uh, the Quiet Duel, but also um, No Regrets for Youth. Yeah, One Wonderful Sunday. Uh, 
the original uh, buggy cop film, Stray Dog. Uh, how do you not want to watch all this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you hear about Kurosawa, and yeah, absolutely, go watch Seven Samurai, go watch Rashomon, go watch Yojimbo, but man, he's got he's got so many good movies just all over the place. Like, it's worth watching, you know? Maybe not his first films, but, you know, The Men Who Tread on Tiger's Tail was what was pretty good, so, I mean, that justified that Eclipse set. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for me yeah uh the Sancho second Rose, one i think was worth it as well that was not that was pre-war and also kurosawa's first film so i think that at least uh mm-hmm. as a completionist you need to be able to watch that to and watch to watch everything yeah i mean everybody's got their Sancho sugata part twos in their filmography <laughs> it's not it's not that you know they weren't genius filmmakers it's just you know that's how the cookie yeah. crumbles I think the, like, thinking back on it, the wildest part of that movie is that it uh, just had a random cut where you could tell that this was the propaganda part, and the the other part was the part where Kurosawa was allowed to be creative. Yeah, I'm just, I, the, the, that, from that movie, still, it's just, like, burned into my brain. Like, the only part in that movie that was amazing was that crazy-ass sword fight where they were just, like, fighting up the mountain. Like, that's the only <laughs> thing that I remember about that movie. Man, what, uh, what a talent. Um, I'm glad to have watched all these films with you and with Chris. Mm. Uh, we are going on a new journey next time. We are. What are we doing, well, we were originally going to go down my favorite director's path, and that would have been Mr. John Carpenter. But a year and a half has passed, almost two years have passed <laughs> since we made that decision. And in talking with Corey, we might ju- we were just going to go with my other favorite filmmaker, probably the filmmaker that influences me most creatively. And this is going to be the funnest goddamn trip. Um, we're going down to Lynchtown. That's right. We're going to start going through the filmography of one Mr. David Lynch, the world's most popular surrealist and man whose movies frustrate millions of people the world over. <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite filmmakers. And this, this means we will also be discussing my favorite thing of all time, which I have talked about on almost every episode since 2017 and that is twin peaks baby oh yeah yeah so we will be starting that series in january i believe next month will be our anime secret santa episode um we have not received our recommendations yet benny but we're waiting for i think the deadline hasn't passed for uh submitting them at all so i i still gotta i still gotta submit my my rec so <laughs> uh i already said mine so Go after Chris. Yes, right. <laughs> uh, hopefully I don't forget it's like the last day and Corey's like, hey, Chris, did you send in your racks? Like, oh, shit. <laughs> or the day after and I have to send an apologetic email to Kate. <laughs> like that happened two t- two years in a row. I'm like, sorry, Kate. Uh, just give it after a week. Yeah. Uh. Um, but yeah, so um, I don't know what we're going to start first with. I had been talking to Corey offline and I really feel that we should experience uh, David Lynch's early short films that he made before Eraser, uh, before Eraser Head, I should say, um, because I feel that, that watching those short films really do give a context into him as a creative person. Um, 
like I just talked about with how why I loved doing this Kurosawa project with Corey is learning about the the director and what makes their films tick and learning about them as a person. I really feel that those short films are are kind of critical in part of that growing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, so either we'll do it together, this one big David Lynch shorts and Eraserhead, or two separate episodes, one for his first five or six short films, and then going into Eraserhead. We'll, we'll work that out, but yeah. it's going to be weird next time, ladies and gentlemen, because we're either going to be talking about Eraserhead or the alphabet and the grandmother, and ain't nobody prepared for that shit. Uh, well, we'll see when we get to that juncture, but until then, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, until then, you can find me on the Twitters, at GoKoofy. You can also find me on Letterboxd, at GoKoofy, and Instagram, at Frogmoz. And you can also find my YouTube channel at Cups of Night Films. Uh, I recently completed my first short film uh, and submitted it to a contest that is up on the on the YouTube page. So yeah, if you feel so inclined, check it out. Let me know what you think. I am really proud of it. I really had a lot of fun making that. And uh, that's it. All right. Uh, let's take a short break. And I will be back on the other side to talk about Ahiru no Sora with Basil. Uh, we are back, and now I have Basil with me. Hi! We are here to talk about some basketball anime. We're here to talk about uh, Here No Sora, which I... It's alright. Look, I I like slam dunks. They they take me to the hoop. My favorite play's the alley-oop. I like the pick and roll. I like the give and go, because it's basketball. Like Curtis Blow, because we're talking basketball. We love that basket. We do love the basketballs. Um... Yeah, Basil, I guess I've never asked you, are you a... Uh, I mean, I know we've talked about baseball before. Are you a fan of the NBA or college basketball or anything? Um, I am ostensibly a fan of the NBA. When I was a young kid, I probably mentioned this during the baseball stuff, but my dad is from Indianapolis, and so on his sister's side of the family, they were all super into Bulls, Bears, and Cubs. And I never really got into football ever, but I was really enjoying the Bulls, but it felt like a cheat because this was during like the Michael Jordan years. <laughs> so they were like super on top period. And I actually just gravitated more to the Cubs because they were constantly losing. And I felt more of a kinship with that. <laughs> um, but I, I don't follow it quite like I used to when I was younger, but now I like basketball. All right. I mean, yeah, living in, uh, I also lived in Iowa or lived in the Midwest in Iowa. Um, so, like anywhere in the Midwest that had or did not have a team seemed to have been following Jordan and following the Bulls in that era. So, that was my gateway through it, but now I am all in on the Los Angeles Clippers, which is just yet another suffering franchise as we follow <laughs> the Bears and the White Sox. <laughs> uh, but we are here to talk about Ahiru no Sora, the anime from Diomedia. Uh, started airing in October 2019. We got 50 glorious episodes of this series, um, and there is 51 volumes of this manga from Kagancha. 
that is a lot of that is a lot of that is a lot of basketball manga that we'll probably never see here. Yeah, well, I mean, Kogansha got the uh, the Ace of Diamond giggles, so we can always hope. That that is true, and I would absolutely hop in on that digitally because yeah. if need because I I. Honestly, I, I watched this show because you were like, "Hey, we're going to podcast about it." Because anyone want to podcast about it? I went, you know, I keep I keep looking at it. Verve keeps telling me I should be watching it. Yeah, I, 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 whenever I have the chance to help put the sports anime <laughs> in the sports anime podcast, I will I will take the hit. Of course, and we are always uh, happy to have you on to talk about whatever. Um, but this monk or this my anime is about uh, Sora Kurumatani. A uh, first-year high schooler who is just entering Kuzuryu High School to join the basketball club. But as he learns, the basketball club is full of delinquents. Uh, they play no basketball, um, but the, the, uh, one of them happens to uh, formerly play basketball, and his brother, who is never in the club, also formerly played basketball. Um, so the, the initial stages of this felt to me kind of like a... Uh, reverse slam dunk in a way there is a, a functional basketball player in Kurumakzani and he is trying to get all of these delinquents to play basketball as opposed to slam dunk where there was one delinquent and uh, a functional basketball team trying to get uh, well eventually one delinquent and then a couple other delinquents to play basketball uh, which is funny because they the, the folks that do play basketball in this show I'll blame Slam Dunk for getting them into basketball. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I forgot about that moment. Uh, yeah, Slam Dunk had a, a huge, huge cultural impact on basketball in Japan. Um, I don't remember if we mentioned it in our Slam Dunk podcasts, but uh, in a couple other newer basketball manga that we are reading, watching in the anime forms, we, we do see those Slam Dunk um, manga volumes pop up still because people love that. It's really good. It, it, it is really good. I mean, it's more or less the Captain Subasa for basketball yeah. as to Subasa is for soccer, but no one knows who Captain Subasa is because we're in America and we're Philistines. Yeah. I mean, they came out with the UD Clo shirts, but that's about as close as we got. One day I'll actually play the game on Switch. I bought it day one, but my stack <laughs> of games I need to play is are, is towering. Oh, yeah. Same. I mean, I'm like eight hours into Disco Elysium, and I've not come back to that game in a few weeks. Uh, but anyway, here in the Sora. Um, so, uh, Sora is a shorter player. He uh, is ostensibly a point guard or shooting guard, um, but he can shoot threes like uh, like Midorima can, or at least with the accuracy of him, if not the all-court shot that Midorima has. Um, the other player is Momoharu, is the captain. He uh play center or power forward uh he i don't know if he's ever made a shot <laughs> in this show um he he's tipped the ball in here and there but he's never actually made a shot yeah uh then there's chiaki uh momohari's brother he plays point guard or center um and he has uh, incredible vision for the court and uh incredible passing sense uh kenji natsume who is known as kite uh, or Toby, um, he has a lot of names, uh, and he plays, uh, power forward or small forward, um, he is just an all-around basketball player, um, this team's LeBron James, if you will, or Michael Jordan, I guess, uh, though those two play separate positions, um, there is Shigeyoshi Kaname, who is the very, very tall center, um, but he doesn't have that much stamina, stamina, 
Um, and then there is three other players, Yasuhara, uh, Nabashima, and Saki, who all are uh, fellow delinquents with Momoharu, and they do not really have a set position because they are all newcomers to basketball. And finally, there is uh, Magoka Yabuchi, who is the coach and manager of this team. She is also a first-year student. Um, but that's basically the, the gist of the series. There's some other stuff that goes along with it, obviously. They have some troubles uh, getting the team off the ground, as well as uh, a almost implosion of the team about uh, three-fourths of the way through the series. But what did you think of this, uh, Basil? How did you... I like the show a lot. I also really, once again, have to mention that the first opening is by The Pillows. It's an absolute jam, bop, kicks ass, whatever, slaps, whatever you want to say. It's a pillow song, and they're never not amazing. Happy Go Ducky will forever be stuck in my head. And I, I really enjoyed, I know I've said before things, you tend to have like sports anime that are about the sport. This is This is a that sh- that kind of show, or you have more of a Mitsuru Adachi show where there's other stuff going around where the sport's more of a framework. Now, this is definitely a show about basketball, mm-hmm. and I think this might be one of the actually more realistic sports about uh, or sport bleh, takes on the sport of basketball, especially for a team that's mostly either very rusty or players who have never really played in their life. Seriously, as I, I don't know if we want to do, do remote spoilers, but uh, oh yeah, the Taiku podcast is always a spoiler cast. Cool. They didn't win a single game in this show. <laughs> yep. They did not <laughs> win a single freaking game in this show, but it was still like every time they, you know, well sometimes it's just they're they're getting blown out, yet somehow it's still interesting, mm-hmm. or it's an absolute buzzer beater, and I'm like. Y'all, are y'all actually gonna win? No. Okay. Okay. This time you've got to. No. All right. Okay. This is the last freaking game that you're gonna have in this running of the show. You have to at least let them. All right. Yeah. And that last game is like against one of these uh, inner high competitors, uh, constant inner high competitors, uh, challenging for the title of best high school team in Japan all the time, and those were their second stringers that they lost by, like, 40 points to. Yeah, yeah. But Amber keeps going, okay, y'all could be an awesome team, mm-hmm. but you also just started. You need, like, at least, like, a good year of prep and practice before you can really actually have a show, and yet we still spent 50 episodes on this. <laughs> and I'm like... I really need, an, um, I don't think I'll ever get another 50 episodes of this, but I kind of really feel like I need another 50 episodes of this. I would love to see the team actually win one. Yeah, yeah, same. Um, I mean, obviously this team has a lot of potential. Kurumakani has a shooting sense that uh, maybe no one else on the court has, uh, at least from the three-point line uh, in the series. Um, Momoharu is just an incredible defensive presence, even though he has only tipped in a couple baskets. Uh, and, like, I think what I like the most about this series is that, from a basketball perspective, uh, it never, or it is more indicative of the current game 
than maybe anything else that we that I've watched. Like in Kuroko's basketball, everyone seems to have their position, uh, except for Kuroko, obviously, uh, and they stick to that position, like because they are just so good at that position and they cannot do anything else. But this team is this scrappy underdog team. They don't really, uh, I mean, everyone has these positions that they're used to, but they they don't really. Uh, set themselves in those places and because they are just coming together as this hodgepodge of delinquents and scientists and uh, basketball players they don't really know where to play everyone for the best efficiency like uh like i was mentioning uh introducing the characters sora is a point or a, yeah point guard and a shooting guard he switched to point guard from shooting guard chiaki switched from point guard to center just so he could get uh, closer to the rim, be able to rebound the balls that Momohara was not, as well as uh, being able to pass out to both uh, Sora and uh, Kikes. So I found that like extremely interesting, the tactics that were going on um, from a position standpoint. You don't usually see that in uh, things that are not big one. It, it's true, and honestly, I love Kuroko's basketball, or the game that Kurokos plays, which also happens to be basketball, if we going to go for the official title. Um, and that's a game of wizards who their magic system just happens to be basketball. Yep. Like, especially the further you go on, just the more and more just magical powers. Like, I think at some, at, near the end of that show, I felt like they could have hopped, they could have been a rival pirate team for Luffy to beat in One Piece. Like, that was just how, like, <laughs> honest to god magical it felt where suddenly oh oh they're in the zone now they got to spend their mp on their special abilities <laughs> oh they're out of the zone i guess they ran out of mp and don't get me wrong it was a great watch i really enjoyed it i love rpgs <laughs> but this really felt like kids were playing basketball mm-hmm. like at the near the end of it they, they they actually start also mentioning the zone but it's very much a, oh, they're just playing slightly better before they're exhausted and collapse. Okay. Yep. Like, I was way, like, this felt way more, I was thinking, like, Ace of Diamond um, as my sort of reference point of, okay, they're actually, they're playing some baseball here, <laughs> whereas they felt like they were playing some basketball here. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I guess, like, infamously, the mangaka, um, Kakashi Hinata, did not like the um the lightning bolts that were coming out of that player's eye because it was so close to Kuroko's like that's why it hasn't had this anime adaptation for so long because they were so trepidatious about uh allowing it to be animated uh, faithfully and he would or they were the mangaka was like so angry about that and they did not do that ever again <laughs> because he was angry <laughs> like I get it lightning out of the uh the eyes it really says oh oh they're really looking at something oh oh they're really this is a fast-paced sport and they got to be able to keep up with it it's a really good visual shorthand but yeah. i also thought on the guy oh oh they're doing the kuroko's eyes okay yeah um but i was also fine with them not doing it i don't think they needed it um mm-hmm. something else i felt even though it was cg'd the the way they constantly had the whenever the basketball went through the hoop with the with the jangle of like it was it was always a good. It always sounded really good. I really like the soundscape they have of them playing basketball, and, and just that that little whoosh. It always, for some reason, was like, yeah. Yeah. 
uh, I don't know if you've ever walked into a bar in March, but once I walk into bars in March and I hear the squeak of the uh, shoes on the court and the sound of the basketball going through the basket, uh, I just know it is a, a correct period of time for me. Yeah, I don't, well, I don't remember much what bars are like now. <laughs> true, true. Uh, they canceled the, the tournament I am alluding to right before, or right as uh, COVID hit uh, the entire world, and everything sucks, but this anime doesn't suck. It does it. I was uh, I, I was worried about it first, because when I first saw it, again, it was just you know popping up, and no one was really talking about it, because it's a sports anime, and no one really talks about sports anime. Occasionally, you get your haikus. Yep. But that's more of a weird offshoot for people falling for it than than not. But it kept popping up, and I realized, oh, this has a lot of episodes, and I thought it was done. When you're like, no, 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 we're still watching it. You have time to catch up. And I went, oh crap, this is a long running <laughs> show. I'm also not used to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a welcome uh, a welcome difference for this to be 50 episodes instead of the usual 13 or even 26. Um, but with a sports series uh, that is 50 volumes long, I feel like that you really need all of that time to be able to tell a story um, sufficiently. Because like sports series always seem drawn out, uh, maybe unnecessarily, but in this case, I think it really allowed the series to breathe. Like the, you got the first game when they were playing um, Magoka's cousins team. And they got pretty close to beating them, but uh, that's only because the the team didn't have their best player for a lot of the game, and uh, they were being a little cocky during it. They didn't like they underestimated Kazuri um, by a lot, uh, and like there is uh, there's a lot of other stuff going on besides just the basketball in the series. And I think that, I mean obviously that's what draws you uh, usually to series. Um, our sports series, it's more than just the sports, uh, or more than just the Moe girls, in the cases that the crab that Ink and I watch sometimes. Um, so, like, when they have the moments when the teacher is really ragging on them to do better, and they, uh, they lose a game, um, and they go back to the clubhouse and just return to their delinquent selves of uh, eating snacks and smoking cigarettes and then burn the freaking clubhouse down, thus causing the club to be disbanded. Uh, those moments really draw me in as like these these characters are trying to not just play basketball, but they're trying to enjoy their youth uh, in in wrong ways in that case. But they're trying to enjoy their youth. They're trying to get better at basketball and they're trying to um now redeem themselves from this grave mistake that they made yeah 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 uh because they 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 allude to something catching on fire in like the opening song you know the opening animation and i went okay at some point things are going to get like real serious and break real bad for this team and i i kept waiting for it and when that moment hit i was like oh crap that is, and it was just a, a happenstance. Like, they didn't even get the chance to actually smoke the cigarette because mm-hmm. the teacher walked in, and I think it even dropped into, like, a trash can, so there was a chance where it could have just fizzled out, but no, it caught on some probably some wrapper or some yep. piece of junk and whoosh, and it, and it really... It, you know that that could have been the show if they really wanted. That could have been the manga, and just the way the the, the team collapsed, and while at the, the same time, you know, 
Sora's mom passed away just due to her, you know, illness. Mm -hmm. And so he wasn't even there. Our main character wasn't even there when it happened. He was actually, you know, back in his original prefecture. So, and then there's other, you know, we got Kite and as well as Brain, Work, the character that Mama Romiano played. Shiki Yoshi. You know, he was not there and poor guy just left his chemistry club just to play basketball again. And so, and I believe uh, Momoharu was not there, nor was his brother, Chiaki. It was just like, just, no, no, sorry, Momoharu was there. Yeah, Momoharu was the one one that was smoking the cigarettes or found, I believe he was the one that found the cigarettes and he's like, well, let's light them up. Uh, No, I I think one of the other delinquent kids did. And they were, they were being Judas tempting the Christ. (laughs) Um... (laughs) And Momoharu, he is, Lord knows, Jesus he ain't. And he was about to, uh, you know, succumb, succumb to the temptation when the teacher walked in. That's right. And and the dude, like, poor Momoharu, like, he has such, for being a punk and ostensibly a gang leader, he has such responsi- a responsible head. He's very, he takes dedication very seriously. Mm-hmm. I also got to say, I really, really, really loved that this was just initially uh, a, a team of essentially like Yankee delinquents, you know? Yep. And the saddest part of this show is when Momoharu destroys the pompadour uh, <laughs> as the cutting of the hair to, to represent I, I am I am losing my hair because I do not deserve to have hair. I, I'm sacrificing it in uh, my bid to become a better person. And I was like, no, no, you can't no and then other guy who also had kind of a pompadour head you, you also sh- no yeah and Kurt McDonny also cut his hair though in- less intentionally than the other two yeah like I get it you gotta you gotta have the moment where you cut your hair to be like yes I'm really all in on this I've showed it to you now I have lost the hair but the fact that I was able to watch a show where pompadours were were playing basketball was just just ah chef's kiss it was it was it was it was so great yep yeah, and I think that's uh, that was around the end of the series too. I think that was a great moment for them to end on, uh, because it was it wasn't just um, them playing basketball uh, and trying to get better at basketball. Like now, there is a reason for all of these delinquents who were kind of uh, wishy washy on basketball at times to really dedicate themselves to this, because uh, there are four guys on this team that really want to play basketball, and like they have. The, the delinquents that now ruined that chance for those four. Uh, one of them is trying, Kite is trying to get to his sister in a different prefecture who lives like near where the Inter High is usually played, I guess. Um, and of course, the rest of them just want to uh, play the sport and be good at the sport. So when they play that final game against the these constant Inter High competitors, second stringers, and lose by a lot of points, um, the teachers who are there are. Uh, like trying to choose whether to allow them to continue or not because they have com- they have committed this grave sin of smoking in school, which like that's I guess that's a, that is a pretty big a pretty big infraction on their part. But uh, well, and these have been a bunch of delinquents. Like they are like the unruly gang contingent of this school. Like mm-hmm. none of the teachers particularly like them if they got all expelled i don't think most of those teachers would give one iota 
Yep. But uh, there is the one teacher, and that's their their teacher, uh, who was the same way at one point, but saw them dedicate themselves to this and saw how uh, excited and um, and how hard they worked to get better at this. Uh, he bought books to to uh, learn more about basketball. He is skipping, or not skipping, but you know he is um, at this game on the day that his wife is expecting to give birth to their kid. Uh, so he is all in on this. Um, and this is a f- formerly a thing that like he was always complaining about. Like, he didn't want to be a part of this because these kids were delinquents. They didn't care, but he saw that they care. And I, I really like the moments between him and his wife where she was like, I- wait, I thought you hated doing this. I thought you really just you did it because you had to, not because you wanted to. And I was very here to support you not doing it because you didn't want to do it. He's like, well, uh, I think these kids actually really want to do it. They're putting in the effort. I think they really want to. They, they really, I want to see these kids pull through. I want to see these kids do well. I want to be the kind of teacher that supports them. And she went, you know what? Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I am down with that. If this is what you want to do, we just had this kid. But you know what? Let's do it. Let, like I'll, I'll support you on this. To help these kids and i was like man that that is a marriage that's gonna last and that was one of the <laughs> things i took the most from like oh man that's that's a good future mom right there yeah yeah, that's yeah. A good future dad uh yeah i absolutely loved those two uh and as well as like all of these characters they all grew in front of us uh as they do in all sports anime and it's not just that they grew better at the sport or demonstrably demonstrably better at the sport like none of them seem to have gotten uh gained some sort of level or special ability that they did not have before uh, except for the three that are newcomers like you see them get better but um the incremental differences between a beginner getting better at basketball and the all of the rest of the experienced people getting better at basketball are uh very differently noticeable but you like the way that these people grow um and how they ended it with how they ended the series with the club being able to resume regular activities was just uh, a great place to end without it feeling uh, unsatisfactory that it ended in the middle of what is clearly the manga still going. Like yeah, this very much felt like we ended at the real starting point for this team to actually grow and become the good team mm-hmm. next year. Yeah. Like that is a common thing where you know, you'll have a team and they're going to do pretty good and they're going to get to a certain point. Then they're going to lose and from the ashes will arise the Phoenix that will actually continue on to be good the rest of the show till, mm-hmm. you know, it's till they they win the Christmas Bowl, enter high, what have you. Yep. And we only actually get to that starting point, but I am absolutely fun how they ended these this 50 because it really feels like we went through a journey like it was this was a long intro as it were but i never felt like anything was if they had cut anything i think the show would have been worse off for it yep i agree i mean if we're if we want to make a comparison i would say this is like um (laughs) the ending of the first 25 or 30 episodes of touch where they say end of part one and that thing happens um, this is this felt like a similar moment. It felt like a, uh, a a good place to step away from the series for a while. Yes, 
Also, I also do want to mention, I forgot when we're talking about the teacher, I really enjoyed how when they first animated him, they only animated his glasses. <laughs> they never actually showed his eyes, but as he became the teacher that really wanted to support these delinquent kids to be not so delinquent and be more, you know, ba- the basketball playing kids, they started more and more letting the eyes come through the glasses. And near the end of the show, they don't even make them opaque or anything. They're always, you know, you just you see him and the eyes and everything. I was like, you know, his his vision for these boys are no longer clouded. I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's a good. That's a good visual touch. Uh, I didn't know he's like. That's really cool. I also want to say how much I really like Sora, our, our little, you know, duck that can still play basketball. I, I I love 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 just how much smack talk he will spit out, and he has no actual physical fighting abilities whatsoever. Like he <laughs> he he will always forever talk the big game, but the only game he can actually play is basketball. Yep. I forgot about those moments, too. He constantly gets in these fights about about basketball, about respecting basketball at the beginning of the series, and he constantly gets beat up. Uh, and I guess we should mention, uh, Hiro no Sora is the Japanese title of it. That's what Crunchyroll uh, put on their site as the title of it. But that translates to Sora the Duck, um, and I assume that is a reference to uh, the story of the duck turning into the swan. Um, in this case, Sora. The main character is a duck who will uh, turn into a beautiful swan that can, I guess, gunk over people that are seven foot. I don't know. Well, I, I think the idea is that you see other people like Kite or Toby. He is a swan. Yeah. Like he is. He was a duck that turned into a swan. I don't think Sora will ever be the swan. I think he is the duck that's going to fight as a duck and he's going to trounce those swans. I'm thinking this is very much, uh, I don't know if you watched the old, uh, I think it was the Toei movie, Ringing Bell. I gig. Um, I feel like Sora is that that little lamb that will eventually become the wolf. Hmm. But he's not, he doesn't actually become like the wolf, but he's such a fierce lamb that it don't matter. Right. I, I think that's that, that Sora's lot in life. I also really feel they do such a good job of height being a thing for him. And how he is going to be constantly fighting against that, but he's not like super humanly like ability to jump real good. Like for example, in Haikyuu, Hinata can he jumps like a Mario, <laughs> yep. where like you know, which is awesome, and I really enjoy it. But I also really enjoy this whole like concept of Sora. He is he is having to learn with what he is given, and nothing ever gets to particularly like inhuman capabilities yeah yeah i mean you see a few um a few random things that seem inhuman but they're like not really inhuman like you because of the way they're animating they may appear that way but really if you google some basketball clips you'll be able to see uh that exact move like i forget the dude's name but the dude that they play at the uh, in the final game with the orange hair that always has his tongue sticking out um, that dude seems to do a lot of stuff, especially when they're playing against, uh, Kite. It seemed to be very, uh, Almine versus Kagami-esque, but, uh, it never got to that point. Like, they're not making, constantly making shots that did not seem possible. Um, it's just that they are driving past each other in a basketball manner, and they animate it to be exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me a lot of, for example, uh, Yuri on Ice, where... All the ice skating in that show, it's exaggerated here and there because, well, it's animation and you want to make stuff look good. Mm-hmm. But nothing in that, in the figure skating, couldn't be replicated 
by an Olympic level athlete. Yep. Uh, all right. Well, uh, do you have anything else on here in the summer before we go to questions? It was a. It's a. Uh, if you had ever thought about trying out this show, please do. Mm-hmm. It it is a good watch. It is really fun. I also really did enjoy watching the stuff. Like for example, uh, now her her actual qualms on being the so the fake coach as it were but her really growing into it and how she really wishes that she could be playing basketball but that's not her lot but she is really good at training she's really good at the idea of coaching and she's definitely also young and inexperienced overall but she can also grow into that also like madoka's like whether or not she actually cares about basketball like when you start this show, she is like one of the head players of the uh, of the girls' basketball team. But as the boys get more and more serious, she starts questioning how serious is she about it. Mm-hmm. And that was a real interesting uh, plot thread that I wasn't expecting to be in the show. And it found it really, and that that was as, as a comparison point for these guys getting more and more serious and her getting less and less serious. And how does she feel about that? And she doesn't know just yet. Uh, I really want to see what she does further on into the show or manga as well, just as much as I want to see what happens to these good delinquent boys. Yep, I agree. And I guess this is another example where there is this very cool-looking girls team that uh, gets no focus because this is a a manga about boys' basketball. But it it is disappointing in that respect that we don't get those really cool series about uh, girls' sports. uh, Or, yeah, like high school girls' sports or uh, Olympic women's sports or whatever. Um, It seems to be all the focus on the men's sports. Yeah, so... But I'll I'll take my breadcrumbs if I have to. Yeah. Even if I have to get these subplots, I'll I will take them. I'll oh yes, give me the girls playing sports shows too, and like actually girls playing sports. Uh, that's just as valid, if frankly at this point more valid and more needed. But if this is what I'm going to get, I will t- I'll take it. Yep. I think I mentioned at the top that uh, Magoka was the manager, and Nanao was the manager. Obviously, that uh, you corrected me like five minutes ago, but. Uh, Shall we move to questions? Let's do it. All right. So, uh, Umix Bloom says, so when it comes to, to drawing tennis shoes, something that not drawers may not be aware of is worth noting. It's actually easier to rank your tennis shoes the more detail you include. Uh, more details equals more difficult to animate, but it does compensate for numerous shape mistakes that are easy to make with bulky footwear. Uh, and I, I guess we did not mention during the uh, main discussion of the show but Ahiro no Sora has a lot of real-life shoes in it, including um, Kite is wearing the Jordan 13s. Um, I forget what the dude's name is, but I believe he's wearing a foam posit, uh, or and Kuramakani, I think, is also wearing a different foam posit, or maybe he's wearing the Air Penny or something. I forget what it is. It's not a very famous model, or it's not a very uh, in-style right-now model, but... Uh, that's a very interesting thing. I would I would not think about like how easy is it to animate all of the detail in these shoes. Yeah, yeah. Doug made some really really good points, and I was I really so okay. Growing up, um, I, I growing up I was a white kid in a very predominantly African American set of neighborhoods. If you ever wondered if you would be 
the, for example, the token white guy in a Luke Cage show, I would be that token white guy. <laughs> um, for example, I, I live in Alabama, grow, born and raised here. I actually could not go to a different school because of, oh, my brain is dying on those, um, the anti-segregation laws. Like, I was, they needed me being white to be in that school. <laughs> like, so I stayed in my school because, but I was raised on, like, BET and, and, and watching basketball games in, like, in high school and middle school and stuff. And a lot of kids around me, I could never afford to be a part of shoe culture, but I grew up around shoe culture. Mm. And so I know how important <laughs> shoes can be to folks. And just to see the, the and basketball is one of the primary ways that you're actually going to get into shoe culture, as far as I can tell, because the shoes are so important and with various deals. I mean, shoot, there are now a brand of shoes called Jordans. Yep. You know, thanks to Michael Jordan and him playing basketball. And so I was really happy to see the shoe game being so on point in this show. Because I feel that's a very important part of basketball, and I'm glad it was represented. Yeah, yeah, it's extremely, extremely important to basketball. Not just because of the style and the uh, often the status that comes along with wearing a particular shoe, but also um, these basketball players need to have comfort uh, when they're playing basketball. Obviously, a lot of them have to. Uh, tie their shoes really tight just so they don't fall off or uh, burst like they did to Zion Williamson. Um, and they need to have the traction to be able to uh, make quick pivots on the court and to be able to uh, sprint down the court without falling or uh, anything else. So, like, the shoe is obviously very important. Like, in, in most sports, uh, the shoes are very important because that is where... Um, every move is going to start from your feats. Yeah, and I know that now I vicariously live looking at awesome shoes primarily through your Instagram. <laughs> yep. So, but no, I really, really enjoyed the shoe game. In this. And they also really go out of their way to show how much damage shoes can take, how much wear and tear that mm -hmm. these kids are putting through these shoes. And how important those shoes can be to somebody. And that was, it's just one of the things you just do not see in, frankly, any other sport anime. Like, even Kuroko's, they didn't really go into, like, the shoes. Yeah. Not like this show did. I thought that was, again, another moment where I feel this is a more realistic take on the sport. It's still a fictional story, but it's more down to earth than some other shows I've seen. Yeah. And, like, he doesn't, uh, or no one mentions which shoes they're wearing, I believe. Um, or they, I think there are a couple mentions, but like it's not usually explicit when they're saying, "Oh, you got the Jordan 13s or whatever." Um, but Kurt Matani's first shoe is literally his mom's shoe, and like he takes it into the store where the now works, so he can get them repaired. And she's like, "Oh, I don't know if we can repair these because these are really old, but like they're so sentimentally important to him." And um, after that burning of the school building, he gets new shoes. And, like, that is yet another indication where um, he's taking this next step. He's wearing different shoes. And he's also, in a way, putting his mom, I don't want to say behind him, but 
she can't support him like she was. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so he's got to, he is going to still play basketball with her, with her, you know, her in his heart, but he knows that now he's, he's literally got to stand on his own two feet. Yeah. And that was also a representation of that. And I thought was, that was really, really, and he also got his dad to become a part of this and help him buy these shoes, which I thought was also good. Like he's like, look, we are, we, we are, we are in this together now because we have to be and we both want to be. So I am now including you in this basketball life. Help me buy these shoes. And he was like, oh, oh okay. Mm-hmm. I, I will not be a deadbeat dad. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Next question. Next comment from Longer Greamer. She just posts uh, a bunch of Precure shoes. They are next basketball shoes. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. Well, so. I mean, shoes probably still make the pretty cure. I mean, let's. I'm sure, sure that is true. They're very cute. Um, so from Zoig9000, they have uh, a couple questions. First, how do you feel the adult folks? How do you folks feel about the adult characters in this story? Do you appreciate the focus on them, or do you find it unnecessary? We talked about this a bit with the coach, but I think there are. Uh, I wouldn't call them necessary or unnecessary, but I think it added a depth to the series that it wouldn't have without it. It's true. Well, it, it helps like with Sora to know his mom. Yep. I know that she was very, very good at the basketballs. And she also has other influences that you don't quite realize, like the the coach for the really, 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 really good team clearly crushed on her. Mm-hmm. You know, and they knew each other in the basketball when they both played. But she also taught the other kid who is the other short kid that is now ostensibly Sora's rival yep. and being awesome short player. Then you've also got other coach guy trying to steal away Kite, who does not because he clearly needs to be, you know, part of the team that he's on. He, he would just be yet another player on that other team, but this mm-hmm. team he can actually, you know, hold the weight of responsibility on him that he clearly needs to push him to be better. Yeah. But then there's also the principal of Sora's high school who had decided on the role that everyone has to join a club, but he even mentions it kind of backfired on him here and there, but he played basketball when he was a kid and he was really, he really would like to see these kids do well because he would like, well, that was my sport. That was my thing. It's finally nice to see them actually doing something. And I can clearly see they care. I, I kind of want to make sure that these kids can do their thing, but I'm also the principal so I've got to be the hard ass when I need to be. So okay, but hmm. but he's also the one that wanted all the adults there to watch that final game to to, mm. to to hope and pray that at least one teacher would pick up the torch. Yeah, and I like that contrast between the principal, the vice principal, and the uh, the former advisor for the basketball team. They are all in the basketball team's corner. They're all like they're not delinquents. They normally wouldn't smoke in the club room. They're really working hard. You just need to see them do this. And like the entire basketball team, and uh, all those people like I just mentioned are under the impression that they basically have to win this game for them to prove that they really care about basketball. Uh, but thankfully that doesn't turn out to be the case. Like, a lot of the teachers leave because they're like, oh, they're not gonna win this game, who cares? So, like, they were never in it, uh, to care about this basketball team. They kind of showed up because they felt like they had to show up. But the ones that stuck around, they were like, oh, these people are, are really working hard. Um, they have some, uh, some spirit behind them. Yeah, so no, I really, I really enjoyed what focus they put on this Thanks to this being a 50-episode show, 
they really have the chance to like to really weave a world narrative into the tapestry and they do a good job of it like you see all sorts of things that if this was only like a 13 or even a a 26 episode show to get this amount of content in there you would not have seen it mm-hmm. and i really enjoyed how well they did that and it's also nice to see some good adults i just recently wrapped up the 12 episodes we have a stars align and there's very few good adults in that show yeah so it is nice to see some good as adults in this show yeah oh man stars Align, such a show uh all right, second question from Zoid9000. Would you say the story is realistic and positive overall, or did it lean too hard on the doom? And- it leaned on the doom and gloom just enough. I would like, agree. Like it gave it just enough pathos to make me really go, "Oh man, are are they? How are they? How are they going to bounce back from this?" Because normally the team loses. Oh no! Well, that'll get the gumption up. Usually your your sadness is like, "Well, the seniors are going to have to leave." So now we only have the juniors and the freshmen. To, to push you on through. Maybe we'll get a new batch of, of hot-blooded freshmen, you know, in the next time. But this time, everyone started off, there were no seniors for them to feel sad about. Mm-hmm. So how do you ramp up those stakes? Oh, you burn down the clubhouse, you, <laughs> you disband the team, and now they've got to literally build this team up from scratch, you know, step zero. Okay, okay. Yeah, big of and an it was good, they did it well. Yeah, I like the... Uh... I didn't think it was too doom and gloom. Um, I would say, like, especially in the basketball sense, it was very realistic. Um, and I think, yeah, I agree with you. It was the exact amount, or the exact right amount of doom and gloom, uh, without feeling overbearing. Because um, there were some random moments, uh, like with Magoka losing the earrings from her sister that she basically stole uh, from her sister. Um, I don't know. Uh stole with permission, I guess. Uh, and those moments were uh, moments of levity doom, I guess. They they weren't uh, huge stakes like burning the basketball or burning the clubhouse down or anything, but um, moments of drama that allowed it to still feel tense without feeling um, like you are burning a building down. Yeah, but no, yeah, the, the, the whole area thing that that was such sibling vibes and. Mm-hmm. And also when when siblings actually get along with each other, that like I see that a lot. <laughs> yeah. All right. Final question: Would you like to see the anime continue? And obviously the answer is yes. I saw would and assumed the rest of the answer would be yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. I would be perfectly happy if this is one of those Ace of Diamond situations where you know it might take a year you know to get another season, but then it's like well. Here you go, another 50 episodes of Ahinosora. I'll be like, yes, please, may I have another? Yeah, or even like Chihayafuru, where there was, what, five years between season two and season three? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, admittedly, season, yes, like, I will, if I have to wait five years to get more of this, I will watch it in five years. I would like it to not take that long. <laughs> yep. Much like, I hopefully, it will not take another five years to get a season four of Chihayafuru, but... Whatever it's there, I will watch it. Yeah, hopefully there will be more of this series. I really liked this series. Um, like I, I came into it thinking it was just kind of gonna be kind of a standard shonen sports series, but uh, I think it really impressed over that. It's not to the level of like Slam Dunk, which is obviously very good, 
but it also only has 50 episodes so far. It's more than that, and that didn't even adapt all of the manga. And I, I don't think it's fair to compare almost anyone to Kakiko Inoue. So, uh, but this one is six strikes below um, that tier of very good sports anime. This was a good sports anime. Yeah, yeah, like, Slam Dunk is a freaking dynasty. I don't think, you know, anyone should ever have to compare themselves to that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, frankly, I'm still surprised Ace of Diamond is as good as Ace of Diamond is, because it is. I, I feel that is now a, a straight-up, like, anime manga heavyweight for sports mm-hmm. that I haven't seen in some time. Even, I mean... Haikyuu, I guess, is also there, because that is also very, very, very good. I would, if I had to rank modern sports anime, I, I guess I'd put Ahu and Asura, like, in the same, like, realm as, um, bicycling anime. Yamushi oh, Pedal. Yo Pedal, yeah. Yeah, Yo Pedal. I think it's, it's, it's very much in that, like, this is, it's not 100% amazing, but it's definitely, like, 90% amazing. Yeah. And it's got those moments that really make it feel super cool. Um, I mean, in, in the case of Yopaga, they, they actually win things, but um, like the added drama of them never winning anything and the fight and clawing for them to finally win something in Ahiro no Sora is what I really want to see this series do. Oh, yeah. Like, the fact that they d- that it's constantly a constant battle to, to, to score every single dunk or point or shoot or you know mm-hmm. all of that like you know the fact that they never single won a single game and yet every game was full of drama and even when they were down by like 30 points it was like well they're not going to win but they're like well if we can get one more dunk one more one more you know one more landing of the points we can go like ha you better watch out for us in the future and i'm like hell yeah get that get it get it get it get it I was like, I was so invested in this in this team. Yep, I agree. I love this team. Want to see them? I got anything sometime. Uh, but Basil, do you have any closing thoughts on Hero No Soda before we uh, shut down this episode and uh, be sad about there being no more episodes? Folks, watch this show so that there's more excuse for them to make more of the show. Yep. Like that is that 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 is my 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 real takeaway now at this point is be like. No, no, please, please just watch the show. Please, please do. Yeah. It, it's it's a good one. It's worth it is worth your time. It is worth your the my brain just died again. God, it is worth the time invested to watch the show. Yep. All right. Uh, let's close this thing out. Where can we find you online? You can find me on my own podcast, the Awesome Cast, your podcast for everything awesome. Speaking of sports, we actually recently we recently did an episode on Stars Align because I actually somehow convince some of my cohorts to actually watch a sports show, which hasn't happened in a minute, not since Yuri on Ice, which, granted, was just last year. That feels weird to say, or not last year, but Yuri on Ice was was, was now a few years ago, and that feels weird. Um, but we talked about it. We re- they really, really, really enjoyed it. We are also doing The Awesome Quest, which is our tabletop, mostly live and mildly edited live playthroughs of things. We're actually ramping up to start a brand new campaign of it we're actually using the the japanese tabletop game of uh ryutama as a more of a long form thing before we've been doing just like one shot one page rpgs or now we're actually trying like an actual like campaign campaign and we're excited to start that you can find me on twitter at its basil time where i will 
definitely posting the music video of the song Basketball by the 1980s rap sensation Curtis Blow. Uh, all right. You can find me on Twitter, at Passion K. You can find this podcast on Twitter, at Taiku Podcast, please, T-A-I-I-K-U. And you can find all of our episodes over at TaikuPodcast.com. Uh, where you can also see the very cool logo that uh, someone made by the name of Basil. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, it's a good logo. I was, I'm very proud of it. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you, Basil, for coming on talking about basketball. Anytime. Daijo, <laughs> <laughs>